Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us at today's Murthy Teleconference series on life after the green card. We're going to approach this really sort of difficult topic, I think, or interesting topic from both the employer perspective, because as an employer, you want to be sure that your employee can work after the green card and what the restrictions are and what the requirements are. And for you as an employee or as an individual to ensure that you are doing all of the right things and being cognizant and diligent not to jeopardize your green card. I am Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm, and I have with me two fantastic, brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys. Are there any other kind at the Murthy Law Firm? Uh, I have attorney Aaron Finkelstein, the uh, managing attorney, uh, and who's been with the firm for over 11 years, um, brilliant scholar and does a lot of green card cases. Uh, and we have Janelle Oklu, who's been working for at least, I would say, half of a decade, or so it feels, at the firm, and doing primarily green cards cases. Um, so with my fabulous panel, we, the three of us are going to try to take a crack at uh, addressing and approaching all the different issues within the 30 to 45 minutes that all of you are going to spare to listen to our wonderful comments. Please understand and realize that once you become a lawful permanent resident, it's not the end of the world. I know all of us think that, that one, the day I get that, it's like an exam. The day I get it, I'm all set. There's no other problems in the world. But guess what? That's the beginning of a new series of problems. It's like happily ever after with the marriage. It's the next set of problems start the next day. Well, what happens when your employee actually attains that wonderful, sought, much sought-after goal and gets that coveted green card? This are, in today's topic, we're going to go over the rights, the privileges, as well as the obligations and responsibilities of being a green card holder. So what does it mean when the employee or the individual gets the 485 or the immigrant visa approval? Well, you now are called a lawful permanent resident or a green card holder in short. By the way, it's finally green now after like decades mm -hmm. of being other colors. Is now allowed to live and work permanently in the United States. LPR or the green card holder is allowed to live and work anywhere in the U.S. So Janelle, what impact does this green card approval have on this individual's employment relationship with the green card sponsoring employer? Let's assume it was an employment-based green card case. Okay, sure, Sheila. Um, well, basically, uh, first of all, we're exactly we're supposing that this is an employment-based green card, so we're not really talking about those family-based I-130s right now. So, if a person got the green card through the approved I-140 petition, then as a general rule of thumb, that employee should work for the green card sponsor for at least one year or, well, we should say at the very least six months, at the very least six months, but preferably one year and the six after months usually getting is, the green card. And the six months usually the person had previously been working for the employer. Exactly. If they hadn't, then we would say one year and longer. Of course. You are right, Sheila. Um, the exception, of course, is people who had already ported to a new green card sponsor based on AC21 prior to their green card getting approved. So supposing someone 
didn't move to a new employer. They got their green card approved. Now, um, if, uh, in fact, you're the I-140 petitioner, first of all, you should make sure that your employee is being employed according to the terms and conditions of the I-140 petition, meaning working in the position that was uh, applied for with the labor cert in the I-140, and also that the employee is being paid at least the wage that was stated on the I-140. Um, as I stated above, an exception to this is uh, someone who might have changed uh, jobs through AC21, and also for an employee who remained in the company, but the person invoked AC21, then of course that person um, has greater flexibility. Uh, they're no longer limited to the exact position uh, uh, for which they were filed, but the person can you know, work in any job as long as it's same or similar uh, to uh, the position that was filed. And just as a really quick refresher, for someone to actually have uh, invoked AC21, it was necessary that the I-140 petition was approved and also that the I-45 was pending at least 180 days. And the reason why I point that out is these days of faster processing, we actually every now and then do see cases that they get approved in less than six months, less than 180 days. So for those people, they actually don't have AC21 portability and they need to stay in their jobs. Very good point, and I think people forget that. I, I also think there's a whole lot of debate about normal progression and duties because to tell somebody five or eight or ten years later you're still supposed to be doing the job from ten years ago with the same salary with the same responsibilities is not realistic and so I've always been asked that question and I think we do get into gray areas with that uh, because the law is not does not really address the issue of a 10 or 15 year green card processing time jumping to the housekeeping task Aaron uh, what should the employer do when the employee's green card is approved? Are there certain issues that they need to consider? There absolutely are. The first thing that we would be looking at is updating the form I-9 to reflect that the employee is now a lawful permanent resident. Generally, that's a requirement either when the H-1B or the EAD expires or if the employee actually tells us or makes us aware of the fact that that he or she has obtained lawful permanent residency status. Also, an, employee should, an employer should update their records with Social Security Administration, and the, employer will, and the employer will keep the same Social Security number, but will be issued a new card. The employee will keep the same Social Security number, but will be issued a new card. The new card will not have the annotation that says, work authorized by DHS. So it'll be an unrestricted employment social security card. Okay, thanks, Aaron. Okay, so now we're just gonna go over the obligations and responsibilities of the green card holder. The first most basic item that most people forget because we assume that once you're a green card holder, you're not subject to the restrictions of filing the R11, which means notifying the USCIS within 10 days of relocation to any new address but this is an absolute mandatory requirement to file it. You can file it online by going to USCIS.gov. Um, you're supposed to do it, as I just pointed out, within 10 days of moving to the new address. And believe it or not, failure to file that form is considered a removable or deportable offense. Uh, and the person has the burden of proving that such failure was inadvertent or excusable. So it's not just for non uh, uh, non-residents uh, 
but everybody other than a U.S. citizen must file the R-11. Janelle, does the green card have any obligation to serve in the U.S. military? Okay, well, as far as serving in the U.S. military, uh, no. There actually is no compulsory military service right now. However, um, each green card holder who's a male and between the ages of 18 and 26 years old must register for the selective service. Um, so basically, if you yourself or you have an employee who's 26 years old or younger when they get their green card, then it's necessary for that person to register for selective service. It's a very simple process. Basically, it can be done at any post office, and it only takes a few minutes uh, to register. However, the consequences of not doing it are pretty serious. Uh, basically, it, it, it could... Uh, um, Failure to register is a criminal offense. It can even uh, possibly later result in the denial of a naturalization application. So it's something that should be taken seriously. Wonderful. I mean, it's so scary. It's really scary because these are simple things. Luckily, I think most of our clients tend to be over 26 years of age. That's one of the positive parts of uh, taking so long to get the green card. You're right. So, You're right. Okay, Aaron, what's the other obligation of the LPR regarding payment of taxes? What if the person did not earn any income in America? Is that an issue at all? What if the green card holder has a business or owns property and assets abroad? Well, I want to start off by saying that we do not give tax advice. So if any of our listeners desire more detailed tax information, uh, we strongly recommend you consult an attorney or an accountant who specializes in international taxation and can really help customize a solution for you or specific details of the law. In general, lawful permanent residents are subject to United States income tax on all income, no matter where it's earned. It cannot be overemphasized that any income, even if it's earned outside of the United States, is in fact subject to U.S. income tax. There are certain circumstances uh, where such income might be exempt from U.S. taxation, provided the income is reported on a timely return and the exemption is claimed. But please note that failure to report income and pay taxes on the return can subject a person to fines and or imprisonment. It can only jeopardize any future citizenship application. It can only create problems not only from a tax perspective, but potentially from an immigration perspective. So I would absolutely be careful and consult the appropriate people. And, and although there is a tax treaty with, with the U.S. and many other countries, including, for example, India and the U.S. have a double taxation where a, a person who pays taxes in one country then doesn't have to pay taxes in the other country, uh, what we find is that if you don't have that treaty between the U.S. and that foreign country, you could actually end up as a green card holder. And by the way, this is a huge negative for very wealthy people. Uh, again, a problem not valid for most of us, but can become, is that if you, for example, pay an average of 40 to 50 percent in U.S. on your money that you earn here, and the, your other country from which you are a citizen also charges you an average of 40 or 50, you could be left taking 5 or 10 percent of your gross income, which would not be a pretty place for you to, to have to deal with because you would be really upset that this matter was not brought to your attention before you become a green card holder. I have made it a point whenever I discuss issues with 
are more or less more wealthy clients that becoming a U.S. green card holder, while we think of America as this great symbol with a statue of liberty and all of those great, wonderful freedoms and democracy, it is also the, the, the reach of the lady statue of liberty gets into your pocket and can get pretty, pretty uh, deep at points. So you have to be really, really careful. Okay, so Janelle, I know there's a whole issue about green card holders and crimes, and there's a huge thing, and most people say, well, I'm not a murderer. I only had a small DUI or a minor shoplifting offense or a solicitation. Should those, and after becoming a green card holder, should that even be an issue? Well, Sheila, (laughs) the surprising thing is it actually is an issue because even though a green card holder is a lawful permanent resident, Permanent doesn't always mean permanent if you commit a crime because, in fact, green card holders are still subject to removal. Removal is basically deportation. So even though you're a permanent resident, it could be possible that if you're convicted of certain criminal offenses, you could actually be deported from the United States. And so it's something that um, someone should take uh, very seriously if they're ever charged with a criminal offense. Um, Now, of course, here at Murthy Law Firm, we deal with uh, U.S. immigration um, advice uh, solely. So we will just say to our listeners today that If you find that you're ever um, arrested or charged with any criminal offense, of course you know you need to get a good uh, criminal lawyer, but also note that it's important to uh, coordinate with an experienced immigration attorney, to have your criminal lawyer and your immigration attorney working together because it might be possible to plead down to a lesser offense, um, you know, something to be able to protect your status because it's, it's one thing to avoid jail time and then end up having to leave the United States. So just remember that it's important to coordinate with the immigration attorney and the criminal law attorney. And so true. And I've seen cases where people have actually, um, the, the U.S. criminal lawyer often says, well, don't even do one day of jail time but sometimes it's almost worth doing a few days of jail time, even horrendous and scary as it is, rather than, and then ask the prosecutor uh, to actually remove some of the other charges or downplay it to protect yourself so that there isn't the whole issue of being removable or deportable from the U.S. And again, as we said, it's a complex issue. Uh, we do have some attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm that, and, and that will do the research and analyze the situation and discuss with state criminal lawyers to really parse out, analyze, and detail, evaluate the case to determine whether there's a good moral character at the time of applying for citizenship. Just it's a whole complicated area, as Janelle just pointed out. Well, okay, so now we want to talk very briefly in a minute or so about the privilege of being a green card holder. We all know that one of the main reasons we all think that we really want to become green card holders is so that we can stay here permanently, live permanently, not be worried about, you know, time frame, the three years are over, the six years of H1 are over, but it's also the ability to sponsor your family members, spouse and unmarried children of the green card holder are allowed to file. And by the way, this is a category that has been moving at rapid speed before we were telling people it would take eight to 10 years. And guess what? Uh, Now under the recent Murthy um, bulletins, if you've been reading it, the Department of State visa bulletins, you will see that by actually February of 2011, we're expecting the priority dates to almost become current, which is what the Department of State projects. But even now it's only eight or 10 months waiting instead of eight or 10 years of waiting. So that's the family-based 2A for spouses and unmarried children under the age of 21 of lawful permanent residence. Um, the next, uh, in, uh, the, the, also 
um, the, the people, for people who were not able to get married uh, before getting the green card before, it was a big negative. Now they can actually get it within a few months if they can sponsor their relatives. And I know one of the minor issues which we don't generally see is, for example, uh, you are no longer able to sponsor uh, a B-1 attendant because you have to be either an non-immigrant or a U.S. citizen to sponsor a B-1 attendant. So it's actually a negative. It's not a privilege or a benefit of being a green card holder. It's actually a negative in a way, uh, the inability to sponsor B-1s. And it's funny because you would say that from an employer or an employee perspective, okay, it's a nice privilege to be able to sponsor uh, a spouse or a child or to have this huge jump in the visa bulletin. But I think what we might find as we go forward is we might find that a lot of people who were previously going through the employment-based categories now are going to look to the family-based categories. And who knows, it may even open up more opportunity for more employment-based cases to go forward. Okay, well, we need to move along because we're 15 minutes into it and we have, haven't even done half of what we need to do. Um, does everyone who, get a, who gets a green card have to file the I-130 in order to get the spouse and children the green card also? Well, the answer is no. If an individual got his green card, his or her green card through employment, then any spouse or minor child, a child under 21 years old, that he or she had at the time the green card was approved can benefit as a derivative of that same employment-based petition. That means same priority date, same category, and same process. Uh, that means also that if a person was already married or already had a foreign-born child, when, the, when his or her green card was approved, he or she does not need to file a new I-130 petition, but can piggyback off of what was already existed to be able to move forward. And we call this often the following to join, consular processing, CP, all of those fabulous terms. But basically, we've done a lot of such cases. A lot of law, lawyers and law firms are not familiar with this, where the spouse is stuck abroad or gets married after the fact or a child is born abroad. There's also a rule that minor children born to permanent residents who come into the U.S. under the age of two can actually enter the U.S. at the port of entry, getting the green card when they enter. So there's lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful options that apply. Uh, what about the I, when is the I-130 not required for derivatives, Aaron? When is the I-130 not required for derivatives? Well, this essentially covers when the I-130 would not be required okay. for derivatives. Okay. But if, you're, if you mean when would it be required, it's funny that you ask, because if it's an after-acquired spouse, and I know that's a weird term, but after-acquired means after lawful permanent residency was acquired, then a person got married, um, there there's, the, there's the, the, uh, the opportunity, at that point in time, they'd have to go through the F2A process or go through the process of sponsoring through the visa bulletin through one of those categories. But okay. I do see that, that if you're saying when is no I-130 required, but we do need to go through a petition process, meaning we are using derivatives or we are using follow to join, there we would look to do an I-824, such as sponsoring a spouse that might be in India. And in that the situation, to join that we, we just would do the about. same follow okay. to join, and we would do it through consular processing. Janelle, what about the parents or brothers and sisters? I know that's a question that they always sure, want to know. People always want to know, now that I'm a green card holder, can I sponsor the rest of my family members? And in fact, Sheila, the unfortunate news is that green card holders are not allowed to sponsor their parents, siblings, or marry children. That, in fact, is a privilege that's reserved only for United States citizens. 
Okay, so basically a green card holder can sponsor a spouse and a child under, excuse me, an unmarried child, unmarried child. However, um, as far as sponsoring your parents, your brothers and sisters, the person would have to wait until they naturalized and became a U.S. citizen. And I know one of the questions is how long does it take parents? It's usually very quick. It's only processing time, usually six months to a year. The parents can enter once you become a U.S. citizen, not a green card holder, as Janelle pointed out. But for brothers and sisters, the process takes between 10 and 15 years on average. Okay, so now moving right along, now that a person has his or her green card, the question is raised, what happens if the person wishes to travel outside the United States? Now, this is very, very common. If you're an own employer, you want to know that for your employees. And if you're an individual, you say, hey, the U.S. is having a rough time. The economy is not great. I'm having this fabulous opportunity in Singapore or in Kuwait or in Australia. Can I go? Well, there are restrictions, strong restrictions. In order for the green card holder to travel abroad, they must use the passport from their home country and the green card to re-enter the U.S. The green card simply serves like the good old visas in the olden days to return back. Generally, the green card is valid for a maximum of one year, but it is not safe to stay out for the entire one year. In fact, it's highly risky to try and come back only once a year because there's a very high risk of being prevented entry at the airport. Janelle, can you describe what exactly happens and how a person, an individual, can jeopardize the permanent resident status or green card status? Sure, sure, Sheila, I'd be happy to talk about that. So basically, even though being a green card holder means that a person is a permanent resident, the thing about permanent residence is it's actually possible to abandon your permanent residence by uh, extended stays abroad. So uh, basically, I'd love to just talk a little bit about how do you maintain your permanent residence status if you are going to be spending some time abroad. Basically, in order to retain your status, you must, whenever you're outside of the U.S., retain an intent to return to the United States. In essence, you must always think of the United States as home and not establish a permanent residence in another country. Your main tie must be to the United States. So uh, the first factor in you know, seeing that the United States is your actual home is time spent outside the United States. Contrary to popular belief, it's not sufficient to just spend one week per year in the US or to just touch down in the US every six months in order to maintain your residence here. In fact, if such a pattern is spotted when you're coming through at the port of entry, that can actually result in an exclusion hearing. Basically, they can conclude that you have abandoned your residency if they see that, oh, you're just kind of showing up in the country once a year or so. Okay. Actually, it would probably be a removable offense. It could, they could start deportation or removal. Mm-hmm. I think exclusion might apply to entering as okay. a non-resident. So we strongly recommend that if you yourself or one of your employees intends to remain outside the U.S. for more than six months um, on any one trip, Um, or to spend uh, over one half of the overall time outside the U.S., then it's a good idea to definitely consult with an experienced immigration um, lawyer uh, because there are steps that you can take before you leave the country. And in fact, we're going to discuss that in a little bit. Okay, and I think Aaron's going to go over Mm -hmm. the N-470 and the re-entry permits. So how else can the USCIS or the CBP officer at the port of entry judge if a person has maintained ties to the U.S., Aaron? Well, it's more if you look at it from a certain perspective, it's like a totality of the circumstances review. 
And this can include things like they'll look at a person's history of filing U.S. tax returns, they'll look at property ownership in the United States, they'll look at family members in the United States, spouses, children that were here while the person was out of the country, they'll look at where the person is employed, where they're deriving their primary income from. Um, all of these factors are all indicators of that the lawful permanent resident, resident considers the United States a permanent home and not just a travel to destination. Very good. So, I mean, it's basically, again, as Janelle pointed out, and Aaron's again re-emphasizing, you have to think as a permanent resident or green card holder, this is my home, not this is where I got the green card so I can go back to my real home in China or in Singapore or in India, but this is my real home. Okay, so the questions we're often asked is, hey, I do need to go back because I have to sell my assets, my property, I have to take care of my parents, I have to wrap up my job. Can I go abroad? Can I, what can I do to try and buy me another year or two? There is something called the reentry permit process. You can file the reentry permit. It's valid for two years maximum at a time. USCIS, in its discretion, can renew it one more time for two years and then usually in one year increments after that. They don't like doing it for more than four years or five years total. Um, a person has to be physically present in the U.S. on the day they apply for the reentry permit. Biometrics are required. Biometrics meaning fingerprinting and the security clearances. If you don't take it before you depart the U.S., then the reentry permit application is deemed abandoned. A lot of people try to speed up the biometrics. People say, how can I do that? Well, there are tips. There are secrets. A good lawyer will tell you how, but usually it means sending a prepaid mail mailer and uh, with a request for discretionary expedite. Try taking a walk-in biometrics appointment. The local USCIS explaining why you need to depart in such an urgency because a parent is not well or you're taking care of issues, a school program is starting, etc. Uh, Janelle, Sheila, yeah. sorry, before we go on, I just wanted to clarify uh, one thing, and that is that if you haven't had a chance to do the biometrics before you leave the country, uh, the reentry permit application actually isn't deemed abandoned because it is possible to leave the country and come back to do your biometrics, but it's necessary for you to have the biometrics completed within 120 days of when you filed the application. That's when it'll be deemed abandoned. Very good. So Thank you can you. actually travel and come back as, as long as you complete the biometrics. And and B, but then they give you a date to show up, and I think if you, they give you one more date or two more, and a lot of local, like the USCIS I know in Baltimore says, you don't show up on that date, we're going to just deny your application. So then you're again going to have right, to re Right, Some people do request a reschedule, though. Reschedules are allowed. So sure. thank you so much for okay. that clarification, Janelle. So what are the requirements? Because the next thing, of course, after the green card, mm -hmm. especially if people want to travel abroad and have worldwide business or operations or want options and want to sponsor their relatives, what are the requirements to become a naturalized U.S. citizen? Okay. All right, Sheila. I'd love to talk about basically becoming a U.S. citizen. Uh, generally, uh, a prerequisite to becoming a U.S. citizen is you need to first have been a uh, lawful permanent resident, have been a green card holder. For most people, that means that you need to you needed to have been a green card holder for at least five years. Exception to this is uh, people who are married to a U.S. citizen. Uh, then for them, it's uh, the requisite period is three years as a green card holder. And uh, just one small note on that, it really doesn't matter how you got your green card, meaning it didn't have to be a family-based or a marriage-based petition. You could have actually still gotten your green card through employer sponsorship, 
but if you're married to the U.S. citizen for three years, then you would qualify um, for uh, naturalization after three years. Um, another requirement is uh, good moral character. You must have been a person of good moral character for the preceding five years or if three years is your, your requisite period. And being a person of good moral character basically means that you haven't um, uh, been convicted of any uh, criminal um, offenses uh, generally within uh, the, the statutory period. Um, in addition, um, there is a uh, English language requirement as well. Uh, you have to show that you have a knowledge of US government history and the concepts of democracy. There are a few exceptions to this for older um, applicants and those of course can be discussed uh, individually with an immigration lawyer. Uh, finally, the two um, kind of tricky uh, ones are the physical presence requirement and the continuity of residence. With physical presence requirement, basically you take your statutory period, for most people that's five years, and you needed to have spent at least half of that time physically here in the United States. So that means actually counting the days you needed to be, have been here in America for that period of time. Um, and then there's also the requirement of continuity of residence, meaning that you have not broken your continuity of residence. So someone who is absent from the United States for over six months, um, there is a rebuttable presumption that they have broken the continuity of residence, okay? So between six months and one year, it actually is possible to rebut the presumption if you can provide adequate evidence to show that you didn't break. Anything more than one year, you really have broken the continuity. And in of fact, that's residence. even abandonment of the green card. And, and nine out of ten cases, uh, if you're in listening and you already were out for more than six months, even with a reentry permit, it's not going to make a difference because most likely USCIS is not going to approve your N-400 for citizenship. Even though the law says it's a rebuttable presumption, we find that in nine out of ten cases, the government's almost never willing to make an exception, barring truly something of some really unusual situation. Um, what happens uh, if the continuity of residence is broken, uh, Janelle? Are okay. they back well, to square one? Actually, it's not the end of the world. There, there are provisions for that. So even if, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the person has been outside the U.S. for a long time and they've broken the continuity, then basically instead of having to start all over again with another five years, it's basically from the time that the individual came back to the U.S. and reestablished their residence, it's four years and one day. So a long time. Uh, four years and one day. And in the case of someone who's married to a United States citizen, it's two years and one day. So a little okay. bit better. Great. I know we're all getting close to the 30-minute mark, and we try to wrap up between 30 to 45 minutes, and we have a lot of issues to discuss on, you know, what happens if you need to transfer the employee abroad and if you require that employee to be there for extended periods of time, sometimes maybe years. You know, how will that person, uh, the individual employee or the individual, uh, avoid a break in the continuity, filing the N-470, uh, and we'll probably try to wrap this up in the next five or ten minutes because mm -hmm. sure. we try to do it in 30 to 40 minutes or so. So, Aaron, so can you touch upon sending the person abroad and do it so that the individual understands the, the, the options? I absolutely can. It does seem to be a, a, a common problem that we see, and we see it facing permanent residents in the modern workforce, uh, the preservation of this continuity of residence that Janelle has been speaking about uh, in order to qualify for naturalization for citizenship. 
U.S. immigration law does provide a mechanism that allows the lawful permanent resident who's been absent from the United States for, for more than one year to preserve their residency for naturalization purposes and not have to restart the clock. And this process, Sheila, you've mentioned was, of course, the N-470. That what the N-470 essentially is, it's an application to preserve residency for naturalization purposes. And um, what the N-470 uh, essentially is good for, it's employees and contractors of the U.S. government or certain American research institutions, employees of American firms or corporations or their su subsidiaries that are promoting international trade or commerce. Generally, uh, the rule says they have to be at least 50% or more of the stock has to be owned by the U.S. entity. And finally, this works for uh, persons that are uh, performing specific religious studies, um, religious duties outside of the United States. The requirements are that the individual must have been physically present in the United States for an uninterrupted period of at least one year after becoming a lawful permanent resident. Uh, this is often what we see as the most difficult hurdle for some people to overcome. After all, many of those people who might need the M-470 do have international careers and they do travel frequently. Also, the individual must have been employed by an American firm or corporation, as I said before, engaged in development of foreign trade or commerce of the United States. So even if it is an American firm, you have to also look to that underlying uh, the the um, the international trade or commerce to make sure that it is a qualifying international firm. Assuming that you have these types of situations, these type of requirements uh, taken care of, that person would be eligible. That person would be eligible to file the N four seventy, and upon approval, that would help to save the continuity. But the physical presence requirement would still remain. So that fifty percent rule that Janelle alluded to before. If it's five years, if you acquired it through employment-based, at least 30 months, you'd have to be in the United States. If it's three years, then at least 18 months, you'd have to be in the United States to qualify. Okay. So just to, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about, like, the foreign-born children of adults who have been naturalized. Sure. Um, when an adult becomes a naturalized U.S. citizen, the children who are lawful permanent residents of the U.S. and who are in their custody will automatically become U.S. citizens thanks to the child uh, Citizenship Act, uh, which was passed just actually seven or eight years ago in 2003. Um, parents who naturalized can apply for U.S. passports for their children who are lawful permanent residents. And also remember that this applies to children who are under the age of 18 at the time when the parents become U.S. citizens. If the children are 18 years or older, they have to file their own N-400 application to become U.S. citizens. If the children are not yet green card holders, then the parents should file an I-130, an immigrant relative petition on behalf of the child, which as we know, the waiting times and the processes, while speeded up, still can take a while uh, to get processed. Um, the other way that the, the, for a foreign-born child to become a U.S. citizen, um, it's not always the five years or the three-year wait for every person, for the foreign person, uh, the exceptions are there's something called a Section 319B, where the five-year or even, the, st uh, or even um, the statutory requirement is waived for an individual who has been married to a U.S. citizen and who works for the U.S. government on a U.S. government or with a public international organization 
by which the United States participates either by a treaty or by statute, and the U.S. citizen's spouse is stationed abroad for a period of at least one year due to, that due to the employment for that particular agency. In that case, a lawful permanent resident spouse may apply for naturalization immediately without actually awaiting the full three-year period. This special provision of the law can be found in Section 319B of the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that's why it's called the 319B provision. <laughs> it is particularly helpful to foreign nationals who are married to U.S. citizens who work for the U.S. military or a foreign service like in the Diplomatic Corps or the United Nations, World Bank, etc. So, I mean, it's a lot of very useful stuff. I know we, we have kind of come very close to our 40 minutes. We try to be mindful of the total time allowed, but we thought we all of these subjects and topics were so wonderful and so helpful. We thank you for participating in today's uh, session, and we look forward to continuing to help you with our wonderful team at the Murthy Law Firm. Go to www.murthy.com for all of your immigration needs, and we look forward to continuing to taking super-duper care of you. Have a great day, and on behalf of Aaron, Janelle, myself, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, have a great day.